The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. It's here. Finally, episode two of our War Story special episodes. I love these so much. This is this is the most fun. I think so, too. You know why it's fun? Because I don't have to hear my own voice. We're just listening to, to interesting people talk about stuff. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and uh, the first person up is actually your good friend, Walt Lloyd. I'm just relieved that Walt's War Story isn't about working with me. He's like, I worked with this asshole named Ben Rock. Fuck that guy. No, he's got uh, definitely sort of like a uh, an anxiety story, if, if I was to, to describe it. And, <laughs> and uh, without further ado... Here is Walt Lloyd, ASC's War Story. I remember when I started, movie of the weeks were very popular. As a cameraman, it's like shooting a mini film and you wanted to, young cameraman, you wanted to get movie of the weeks. And so I got hired to do this movie of the week, my first one. And the director that was shooting it uh, was an actor that just started directing, but it was his first one. And so there was all this tension. First of all, I was a young cameraman, so there's all this nervousness about the lab and exposing right, and just the usual stuff, and running the crew. But also the, the time factor with the studio. You know, you're a young guy, you don't have a lot of experience, can you, can you shoot it on time? And they were doing the same stuff with the director. And the day before we started shooting, I'm having lunch with him. And I said, God, I had a terrible, awful dream last night. And I said, we're shooting this scene, and we're on the beach, and Harry Dean Stanton is the actor. And in the scene, there are a bunch of cannibals. What's supposed to happen is they throw Harry Dean Stanton into the pot and cut off his head. And we're sitting around in the pre-production meeting, and the special effects guy says, you know, we can save money by not having a prosthetic. This is maybe too bizarre to tell. (laughs) If, If we actually cut his head off, and in my dream, I'm going, what the hell? And he said, yeah, we can cut his head off as long as you can shoot the scene Within two minutes, I can get his head back on and he'll be fine. And and this is anxiety about shooting on time. And I go, you know, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. He goes, no, no, we can do this. We can do this. And the producer goes, yeah, we're going to save 50 bucks on the prosthetic head. Let's do it. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm telling this story. So anyway, the dream goes on, and they cut Harry, Harry Dean's head off. And I'm looking at his head, and it's starting to turn gray. I'm freaking out. I'm yelling at the crew, hurry, 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 you know, and running around, grabbing lights, grabbing the camera, trying to shoot it, just yelling at everyone. And thank God I woke up. So I can't tell you whether Harry made it through the scene or not. That's one story of the anxiety of being a cameraman. 
War Stories. I'm Shauna Hagen, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. I want to tell you a story about Shakespeare Behind Bars, a film that I shot years ago about a group of inmates at a prison in Kentucky that do Shakespeare. Their year we shot, they did The Tempest. The Tempest is set on an island, so there's a lot of metaphors with uh, redemption, forgiveness. You know, it's just it's an obvious sort of metaphor for, for prison. The guys uh, in the troupe, the Shakespeare troupe, uh, very traditional Shakespeare troupe, the guys play women's roles um, in this particular Shakespeare troupe. They pick the play they, they want, they pick it themselves. They also cast themselves according to their crimes. So murderers play murderers, rapists play rapists. The men play the women's roles, a very traditional Shakespearean troupe, very sort of ragged, ragamuffin, like crazy group, but really, really fantastically devoted to the work. Would travel about a mile from the parking lot all the way through security, through a number of different gates, into the cell block 3D where they were, uh, most of the guys were living. A lot of our guys were in for a longer period of time. There was one guy who was serving a 25-year sentence for killing a cop. Another guy was uh, in for life, two life sentences without parole. I mean, lots of serious guys, and they were all life, you know, lifers or long-term sentences. On occasion, there was count. They do count four times a day. Count is when the prisoners needed to be counted, right? So if there was somebody missing, they'd have to shut up, shut down the whole prison. And oftentimes, we would not want to be inside the cell block when they closed the doors for count because it, it often could take an hour or longer before they'd open the doors. And we didn't want to get stuck in there, not only for our personal safety, but also like we wanted to get out and shoot. You know, we didn't want to get stuck there, especially at the end of a day. So this one day, we of course were in there shooting and it was a key moment when one of our characters really told us about what he had done. It was a really key interview. And we ended up staying a little bit longer than we wanted to. And of course, count started and you hear this, you know, big, you know, the count, count time, count time. And we're like, oh shit. <laughs> And we couldn't, of course, we tried to gather all our stuff and run towards the door and it just slams on us. Oh, I guess we're locked in. We are locked in prison for, for however long it takes to do the count. And I don't know if they were screwing with us or they just kind of took a little bit longer, but it, it felt, it was probably about 90 minutes. It certainly felt like a, a two or three hours, but um, after the first half hour, we were kind of like, all right, how much more B-roll can we shoot? Running along batteries, we didn't have much tape left, so we're like, all right, let's stop shooting. And we just kind of sat there, and then we realized that the guys had started to play a game of dominoes in in the center of this of the cell block. And it was kind of quiet, it was kind of interesting, and we'd, again, done our shooting, and we're kind of almost out of tape, so couldn't shoot anymore. And so we were like, hmm. And then one of our guys was sitting, actually, at the table playing uh, dominoes, and he kind of did one of these, like, you know, little, like, head nods, like, hey, want to come play? like oh my god I don't know if I want to play dominoes with, with prisoners and I realized that it was one of our guys and I said and he's like oh come on over and sure enough I sort of got in I was trying to be as social as I could be and realizing that this is I'm in the middle of a prison in Kentucky locked into a, a you know a cell block with a hundred guys who are murderers and rapists and I realized at that moment actually I wasn't scared I, I was like I should be scared but I wasn't really scared because I knew I knew the guys I knew the guys I knew you know and they invited me to play to play dominoes with them so I sat down one of the guys left and I took his place and there's four people we're all sitting playing dominoes for another half an hour and at that moment I was like this is really cool who gets to go into a prison and experience like prison life like without actually going to prison what a privilege to be able to kind of experience like a quiet night in a prison cell block and realize that these guys are just guys they may have unfortunately killed somebody in a rage or a drug influenced thing one guy was the sweetest guy um 
and uh, he was high on drugs and shot a cop. So he's in prison for life. Uh, but he's the sweetest, nicest guy, and he's come around. He's sober, of course, and really is one of the key players in this in this Shakespeare troupe. But he was one of the guys playing dominoes with me, and I just realized that these these are guys, and they their their biggest thing is they just don't want to be remembered for the worst thing they ever did. And that was a quote from the film. One of the guys was just like, we just don't want to be remembered for the worst thing we ever did. We want to be seen as people, as people trying to better ourselves. We want to, most of us go to school. We have jobs here in the, on, the, on the prison. And it was a really kind of bonding moment for me with, 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 with my subjects. And I wished that, at, at one point, I wished I had, had a camera to be able to document all this. And I, we were out of tape and out of battery. So I was like, all right, this is just a life moment for me. But at the end of this scene, and the, the, the doors opened, and the count was done, and the, it was completed, I said, oh, you can leave now. And we're kind of like, oh. Do we, do we really have to go? Um, but they said, well, before you go, you know, you have to have a nickname. Now that you've spent time with us in here, you got to have a nickname. And uh, they were all thinking, and they were like, I, I know. And one of the guys, um, you know, had said, I think your name, nickname should be Eyeball. And they said, what do you mean? He said, well, that's all we see. You know, I usually shoot with one eye to the eyepiece, and then the other eye is open, so I keep the other eye that's not on the eyepiece opened. And I thought it was appropriate. But So I got this sort of prison nickname you know, after spending 90 minutes with these prisoners inside cell block 3D. And so now I'm known to them as Eyeball. I really enjoyed Shauna Higgins' uh, war story there. Brilliant. Uh, next up is Byron Werner, who, of course, was on the show recently. And uh, you know what? I, I don't want to spoil it. We should just go right into his war story. This is Byron Werner. I have a literal war story when it comes to filmmaking. I was early in my career out of college, uh, about three years. And my buddy, who I went to film school with, went down to Columbia to make a movie. Now, Columbia then wasn't what it is now. I went down there in 2001. There were places that we were shooting that a week later were bombed. There was um, full armed security guards. So it was a movie that was about the uh, emerald mining in Columbia. So we ended up driving out twice uh, to the emerald mines which was like driving from los angeles to san diego but it took like 12 hours on a bouncy road so this whole movie was a complete war story a it was pretty crazy for me to even be there now that i look at it i don't know that i would do it again but we would drive long distances we would end up in um, emerald mines where they were having wars between emerald owners or mine owners we had sometimes over 30 armed security guards with guns, which they put in the movie and decided that they were going to use the real guns and pull out all the bullets. So I'm operating 35 millimeter handheld going around, hoping that they had pulled all the real bullets out and put the fake ones in as they were shooting. Um, we ended up shooting in an emerald mine, which I think was a mile and a half in, and then in an elevator 300 feet down. Remember we had an old Evolution Airy BL and I said to them, I said, you get to pick one lens because uh, you're not gonna be able to change the lens in there with the condensation. We picked one lens, we carried it all the way in a mile and a half and 300 feet down shot. We came back out and as soon as the condensation cleared or whatever happened, it fried the circuit board and wrecked the camera. I did learn that the guy who originally created the evolution, I guess is Colombian, and lived in a nearby village, and they were able to send the BL to him on a helicopter and get him to fix it in the middle of the jungle. It was one of the craziest experiences of my life uh, in doing this movie, and um, it literally was actual war story. War stories. 
So that was Byron Warner. And next up, we have a war story from Claudia Rashke, including an actual sound clip from the movie that she's talking about, which was uh, which is a perfect little moment in there. Uh, on the film uh, A Sea Change about ocean acidification, I was working with Barbara Ettinger as a director, and uh, she was very concerned when I said it. I said to her, let us uh, take a boat out and go near the glaciers because this is about receding glaciers. We should really be there and, and kind of film the carving of the glacier. And she's like, are you out of your mind? Uh, what if the camera falls into the water? And so anyway, but she was interested, and we definitely wanted to go there. So I took a... Uh, I took the small camera out there and in order to go near the glacier we had not a solid boat but one would say it was a rowboat with a motor and we had these scientists that were of course you know uh, completely feeling secure about where they would go but they weren't really quite equipped to know and navigate um, the waters because when you are near a glacier that's carving, you have these ice blocks that are floating by, but you are only seeing about 2% of them. And because they're still in the process of floating away from the glacier, they at any time could break and jump out of the water and create a tsunami you toward your boat. And you can flip over in the water. Now, mind you, the water is freezing cold you will only survive in it without any protection for about 30 seconds so we had already put on these survival suits which are huge puffy orange things which are very difficult to maneuver around and so plus there was a certain amount of spray coming from the water that kept flipping onto the lens and uh, we had to split up in two boats, so I had the director and uh, some scientists in a different boat, and I was with one scientist who was also a little bit more willing to risk things for good angles. And all of a sudden, the director calls, he's like, look over there, the glacier is carving. But when a glacier is carving off, you don't hear it. You first see it. And then a beat later, you hear it. So you can't be warned. And it is like that moment of it happened. I saw it. I grabbed it with the camera. And then five seconds later, or it seemed like a long time, this humongous thundering sound happened. Can you hear the ice cracking over here? Sounds like a dynamite. Imagine a 10-story tall building falling into the water, sinking down, and then with this huge eruption, jumping back up because of the impact. It just has this incredible propulsion to just explode back out of the water. And that causes this big tidal wave that then rushes towards you. And if you're in a tiny boat, God help you. And at that moment, it shook me so much. And I was standing in this nutshell. And then the wave was coming thereafter that it was this epiphany of, you know, we feel so invincible and so immortal and take these risks without really thinking them through. And sometimes we really pay for it. And uh, I did not fall into the water. The scientists didn't fall into the water. 
but we were very close. War stories. So that was Claudia Rashke, and next up we have the amazing Sal Totino and his uh, war story, which uh, is quite a war story indeed, and deals with the production of the Oliver Stone movie Any Given Sunday. Jamie Foxx and LL Cool J, the two characters in the film, have a lot of tension between them. But in real life, there was some tension between them as LL Cool J being the ultimate rapper and Jamie Foxx is still a new young guy on the music scene. Um, there was no love there. So there's a little t- always a little tension. And uh, we were shooting a particular scene where they get into a fight when they're coming off uh, after a play, coming off the field, and Al Pacino, the coach, gets in between them and breaks it up. We're shooting one way, in one direction, and LL hits Jamie. After it takes over, Jamie's like, what the fuck was that? You fucking hit me. He's like, I was improvising. He's like, well, if you're going to improvise, tell me if you're going to hit me and improvise. And what happened was we ran out of light, so we're like, we're going to pick it up tomorrow on the other side. So these two guys had time to sit and let it brew. So what happened the next day, we're shooting a scene. What does LL do? Decides to hit Jamie, but didn't tell Jamie he was going to hit him. And a full-blown fistfight breaks out. And Al Pacino's underneath them in character, has no idea, trying to break up. So punches are flying over Al's head. The crew, the producer, everybody, we run out of the field, we jump on everybody, we break it up. Calm everybody down. And, you know, everything seems to be fine. And we have this brilliant idea, like, we're going to go again. They got the tension out. We're going to go again. And the guys, the shot was from the technocrane. Uh, They come running in underneath the technocrane off the field. And the fight ensues. So they're waiting underneath the technocrane for the AD to call action. And it was this whole long process about having sounds of the crowd and then rolling camera, and by the time you called action, it was at least 40 seconds, if not longer. And Jamie is still pissed off, and he is just mouthing off to LL. And LL just turns around, and, and mind you, he's a brick house. His biceps are like my thighs, you know? He's just like, I would not mess with him. He turns around, and he's got a reach, like a heavyweight boxer. Hits Jamie. Jamie goes flying back and hits the technocrane. And to me, my whole world, like I was really close to one, to it because I kind of felt something weird was happening. And it just like went into slow motion. I saw Jamie's neck kind of snap, and I was like, "Holy shit, he's dead!" And he hits the floor, and then he jumps up, and it is full blown war. I mean, the punches are flying. And, the, and, you know, they're in uniforms and pads, and you're like a civilian. You're going in to break it up. You're getting hit left and right in your body. Who knows who, you know? So everybody went in. We broke it up and stuff. And Jamie wound up with some stitches in his tongue. And two days later, he had like a full four-page dialogue scene with Al Pacino, that whole jambalaya thing. You know, Jamie did great. And, you know, it was interesting because the tension was diffused after that. They kind of got along really fine afterwards. It was... Uh, testosterone ego there's a few people I've wanted to hit that you can't (laughs) but you know this is my first experience on a film it's like fuck this is crazy 
war stories. I, I love uh, Sal's war story. That was uh, that was so much fun. Uh, and for our final war story of this episode is uh, Reuben Fleischer. Uh, Reuben, Reuben Fleischer uh, tells uh, a war story from, from early on in his career. So as an early uh, aspiring music video director, the goal was constantly to elevate the game, whether it's a new technique or a new piece of equipment or a bigger artist, like we were always trying to do something more than we had in our last uh, job or whatever, just to build our reels. My career never really took off in America, but early on I was doing a lot of UK music videos and and there was this grime artist named Wiley who um, was kind of like the UK version of rap. I got hired to do a video for a song called Who Ate All the Pies? And he had to delay the video originally because he got stabbed. But then by the time he had recovered from his stabbing, he came to LA. And so basically I was like, okay, I'm gonna throw it all in on this music video. I'm gonna like, this music video is gonna make my career. A producer I'd worked with a bunch, Jasper Thomason was producing it. And we had a $35,000 music video budget which for me at the time was huge. So I was like, okay, we're gonna do it all. And so the video premise was about this guy who goes to a barbecue in LA with typical chicks and then there's a pie eating contest and he eats all the pies and then he gets fat. We had to do like a prosthetic thing and make him fat. And then all the video hoes that are typical video hoes, we had like heavy girls being the video you know, post video pie eating. So it was like a play on gender stereotypes and body image and all this stuff. I shot it with this DP, Damien Acevedo, and we shot it on 35, which for me was a big deal at the time. We also decided to shoot anamorphic, which I'd never done before, and to shoot anamorphic on film. And given that it was 35 grand, which wasn't a ton of money, we were doing a lot. We were doing it anamorphic 35. We were do I had like a I think a techno crane, it might've been my first ever techno crane. It was my first ever techno crane. I had the prosthetics and I was just like going all in. And at that time, some music videos, the record labels try and get two videos out of one. So they tag another song at the end of it, but they wouldn't give you more money for it. You just had to do like an extra bonus little 45 second music video, but I have a whole different concept and a whole different look. We shot it in Legion Park. It was like, you know, all the extras were getting paid nothing. Nobody had heard of this UK rapper guy before. It wasn't like we had a outcast or something. We found the girls on Craigslist. Like the whole thing was just beg, borrow, or steal the whole thing. I didn't realize just how much I had bitten off more than I could chew. So the day started, you know, at sunrise. First problem was we hadn't scheduled time to put him into the fat suit. So like we shoot all them stuff skinny. And then like, we got to stand down for two hours while they put him in a fat suit. And also because I didn't have any money to hire a proper makeup artist. This was some person that we found on Craigslist. They didn't really know what they were doing either. And so the makeup looked terrible. While they were putting him in the fat suit, I had to like go shoot slow-mo shots of, of girls, both skinny and heavy and doing, you know, typical music video booty stuff. And then he comes out in the fat suit. Like we all kind of had to look at each other and not acknowledge the fact that it didn't look how it should. Anamorphic adds contrast to the film and he's a dark skinned man and like the fat suit and it just, 
none of it was exactly how it was meant to be. So we shoot the whole day in the blistering sun in the summer in LA, sweating through the fat suit, just everything's terrible. And then we have to shoot this whole other music video, which the concept was basically Scarface. And so it was shot at this landing pad. There's a helicopter landing pad in the back of the park where we shot the thing with LA in the background. It looks super cool. I had gotten this like 1980s Cadillac limo with a blue velour interior to shoot him in the back of the uh, limo driving around. We didn't have any permits for any of this. I have Damien in the back with the 35 mil shooting him, driving around, lights hanging out the side of the camera. You know, after about maybe 19 or 20 hours, he was like, okay, I'm over it. Like, I gotta go. But I was like, well, we gotta get driving shots of the car of the Cadillac driving through downtown LA. And so uh, we strapped a 35 millimeter camera to the hood of the Cadillac limo at two o'clock in the morning with no permits, driving around downtown LA, got pulled over by cops. They're like, do you, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? And I was like, um, yeah, we're, and then uh, the cop said, oh, are you with that movie uh, that's shooting? I forget, I think it was like SWAT or something. And I'm like, are you with SWAT? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're with SWAT. And I'm like, okay, cool. And they let us go. And we ended up shooting 25 hours straight with no lunches or dinners or anything, no unions, no nothing. The video, we brought it into the telecine and like I hadn't done much film at that time. And the whole thing just was so dark and just like, you know, you can watch it on YouTube. It's called Wiley, Who Ate All the Pies. I should watch it myself because I haven't seen it for probably 15 years. But I think, uh, I think despite everything, I learned a lot and it's a, still a pretty entertaining music video. War Stories. All right, and that was Ruben Fleischer's War Story. Uh, this, this whole episode two, I, I think I liked it even more than the first one. This is great. I don't have a favorite child, Ilya. Only you, only you would choose a favorite child. <laughs> I think I like the compilation of all these. I think I don't know so, something about it. Hey, Ilya, which which interview do you like the most that we've done? Who's your favorite DP that we've talked to? Mm, good question. Good question. I don't have a favorite. <laughs> um. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, if you liked these, there's another one coming. We've got even more war stories to, uh, to to put together and put out here. And then maybe we'll sneak in our own war stories in with the, in with one of these upcoming I, batches. I have already recorded two war stories of my own, so I'm very excited. About <laughs> All right. That. I'll have to record one myself. Okay. Yes. I know that you have them. <laughs> one or two. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Until next time, uh, keep liking and subscribing to the Cinematography Podcast and spreading the word amongst your friends or sharing it on social media. We can always use that. We're very late to Instagram, but I think we've hit now 700 followers or something like that, which is great. Not bad. Yeah, we're, we're working on it. Slowly but surely. Well, we will see you at the next regular or special or war story special episode of the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.